It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. December 19 edition of the PFT PM Podcast. How's it going? Got plenty of things to discuss today. Another Five Down Territory edition. That's just an excuse for coming up with five different things to talk about before I answer some of your questions. And I want to begin in Pittsburgh. I was expecting to hear today, as we always do on Tuesdays, from Ben Roethlisberger, who gets some amount of walking around money from 93.7 The Fan to call in every Tuesday morning. I don't know what they pay him. A thousand bucks a week? Five hundred bucks a week? Whatever it is, it's not worth it. Because it's another occasion to put yourself in a position where you are saying things that can and will be used against you, especially if you say something that can be used against you. And obviously the topic of the week relates to the end of the Patriots-Steelers game, the way things were handled or not handled. And Roethlisberger revisited comments he made after the game about why he didn't clock it and he wanted to clock it and they were telling him, through his headset not to clock it, and he says in hindsight he should have just clocked it. And look, I understand all that. I get all that. That makes sense, right? But it still doesn't mesh with the reality that the Steelers had three minutes and 20 seconds to decide what to do. And it's now clear, abundantly clear, that they did not come up with a plan as to what they were going to do because of something Alf Roethlisberger said. And this throws... Offensive coordinator Todd Haley under the bus, whether Roethlisberger intended to do it or not. Because Roethlisberger said, I wish we would have called two plays. I wish we had two plays ready to go. Well, they should have had three plays ready because it was going to be second down. So they should have known, here's what we're going to do on second down. And if the ball stays inbound and the clock is ticking, then this is what we're going to do. If... It's not, then this is what we're going to do. Then this is what we're going to do. You come up with a float chart. You had three minutes and 20 seconds to do it. The cutaways, and it goes from person to person. And it's great because it keeps it moving. And you've got a shot of Mike Tomlin, a shot of Bill Belichick, a shot of Ben Roethlisberger. The best I could tell during watching the CBS broadcast is that Roethlisberger was on a knee waiting for the verdict. And yes, is it on the coaches to put a plan in place? Sure. But nothing stops the quarterback from taking charge. I mean, if the quarterback's got the ability in the heat of the battle to change the play, he's got the ability to call his players together on the sideline and say, look, the coaching staff may have their head up their ass, but we're going to come up with a plan. And that gets back to the fundamental difference between the Patriots and the Steelers. Steelers, good. Patriots, great. Steelers have the talent to get to where they've been this year and where they are and where they're going. But situational football. And it's not just making the right decision when it's second and four with a minute and 32 seconds left from the opposing team's 38-yard line. What do you do here? What do you do there? How do you manage this situation? It's also being able to handle the situations that unfold when you're not playing. You've got an opportunity when they're reviewing the Jesse James touchdown to plan what comes next. Well, we think it's a touchdown. What's there to plan? You assume it's not. Well, we think that because what the refs are telling us, if anything, the ball's going to be down at the one. So we're planning for that. You assume everything, especially when you have eyes. They're showing the replay. You have people up in the booth who are seeing the replay, who are telling you what to expect. I don't know why in the world Mike Tomlin, the coach of the Steelers, would have expected that if the play were overturned, they'd have the ball at the one. If that play was being overturned, they would have had the ball back at the spot of the last snap because it was going to be overturned based on the fact the pass was incomplete. So, look... And I'm always torn on this because I appreciate it when people say things. They could opt to say nothing. They could opt to be robots. They could opt to avoid anything that would give us anything interesting to talk about, just like the Patriots do. But is it a shock that a team that would be buttoned up and organized in that three minutes and 20 seconds that elapsed between end of play and announcement of replay outcome is it a shock that that team is also buttoned up every day of the week every minute of the day is it a surprise that that would happen because that's the way the patriots do things they are buttoned up all the time they don't give us anything we can criticize them for the one thing i can remember was seven years ago after the rex ryan foot fetish nonsense came out and julian edelman 
in defiance of the orders from Bill Belichick, was making all sorts of jokes about it at a press conference. That's the only time I can remember it. They're buttoned up all the time. It's situational football all the time, and the situations apply when the game is being played, when the game isn't being played, and when no games are going on whatsoever. And that's the difference. Now, look, any other team can behave the same way. It's a copycat league, and the way the Patriots do business is out there in the open for anyone to see. Bill Belichick is willing to take criticism from the media for being one of the most boring people possible when answering questions. Tom Brady, I mean, he's not unfriendly, but he never really says anything. He knows how to say things without saying things. It's the Nick Saban gift. You hear Nick Saban in a press conference, it sounds like he's saying things. You look at the transcript, you're like, that son of a bitch didn't say anything. That's the gift. Roethlisberger says things that opens him up for criticism because they're inconsistent. They tend to blame others. Here's what he does. This is the formula. He gives the long explanation that places blame on others, and then at the end he says he takes all the blame after he's already blamed everyone else. And make no mistake, and he may not appreciate this. I, look, i got to call it like I see it. i got to do my job. And my job is to say that when Ben Roethlisberger says, I wish we would have called two plays, we should have had two plays ready to go, that is calling out the person responsible for calling the plays. But he's also calling himself out. That's what he doesn't realize. He's not a passive participant in this. He's the quarterback of the team. He's the leader of the team. Hey, guys, come on here. Get together. We got Look, look. Hey, they may overturn this. We got to be ready for anything. We got to be ready for everything. That's the difference between the Steelers and the Patriots. The Patriots are always ready for anything. They're always ready for everything. And that's all I'm going to say about it until... It's locked in, Patriots-Steelers rematch. Because I'm not so sure it's going to happen. I kind of hope it does. But that's it. I'm done. Moratorium on further talk about how the Steelers screwed themselves on Sunday. I think I made the point. One more point, though. And this is about replay review under the catch rule. Specifically arising from the Jesse James catch. But also, as it relates to any of these other catches. Because it gets back to... The concern that the system that was put in place for Dean Blandino to be the person who makes the decisions as to whether or not a ruling on the field is going to be overturned. He makes that decision from 345 Park Avenue, sometimes at the game site, but that supersedes whatever the referee would say. It's a waste of time for the referee to even be looking at the Microsoft Surface tablet product placement. That's that's the benefit. It looks like the referee's involved. So there isn't this sense that some vague entity and in some distant location, is legislating the outcome of the game. You create the impression the referee's involved. What's the referee doing? Okay. He's like Pete Davidson. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. They're not making the decision. The boss is. The problem is the system was put in place for a boss who isn't there anymore. And the new boss is not the same as the old boss. The new boss doesn't have the same skill set when it comes to stubbornly and consistently applying the standard. Clear and obvious evidence. Is there clear and obvious evidence that the ruling on the field was wrong? And as it relates to the Jesse James play, now Blandino's not out of the woods on this. I got something to say about one of his past decisions coming up, even though it technically wasn't his decision. He was involved in it. The Jesse James play, we got to keep in mind the rule. The rule is fairly simple. Well, at least as it's written. You must secure the ball control in his hands or arms prior to the ball touching the ground. You must touch the ground inbounds with both feet or with any other part of the body other than hands. And you must maintain control of the ball after the first two conditions are fulfilled long enough to clearly become a runner. So, and now, the the other side of that is, if you don't, you haven't completed the catch. So if the ball comes free and touches the ground before you've done one, two, and three, it's no catch. The ruling on the field on Sunday night was that Jesse James secured control of the ball. He had two feet down. He maintained control long enough to clearly become a runner, and he crossed the plane. That was the ruling on the field. So you have to have clear and obvious evidence that didn't happen. And you go back and look at it. Is it clear and obvious that he didn't have the ball long enough 
to clearly become a runner. He caught the ball, he turned, he broke the plane of the goal line. That's where I get back to the Dean Blandino involvement in the Des Bryant catch, because the ruling on the field in that game, the Cowboys-Packers-NFC division round game, where fourth down, Tony Romo throws deep, Des catches it, takes two or three steps, falls to the ground, lunges forward with the ball tucked into his arm, the ball comes out. The ruling on the field was a catch. So the decision to overturn necessarily means there was clear and obvious evidence, or the term that was used at the time, indisputable visual evidence, that the ruling on the field was wrong. And if you're talking about this effort to have the ball long enough to clearly become a runner, that, and I think at the time, the, 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 the way it was written was enough time to perform an act common to the game. Right? They, they tweaked the language after that game, but they really didn't do it. And see, that's their concern, I think. When they try to decide how to improve the catch rule, I think they're concerned that whatever they do to improve it is going to make it worse. So they just kind of let it be. But there's a difference between the catch rule and the replay standard. So when you are Al Riveron now and you're making the decision on whether or not to overturn that ruling, it's not what do I think happened. You're not applying the standard in a vacuum. Did he secure control of the ball? Did he touch inbounds with both feet? Did he maintain control long enough to become a runner? The question is, is there clear and obvious evidence that that standard wasn't properly applied? That's a high bar. That's 50 drunks in a bar. That was the way Mike Holmgren explained it or words to that effect 20 years ago. You want to have, if you're going to overturn these rulings, a clear consensus. It's clearly wrong. Clearly and unmistakably incorrect. The fact that it took three hours or three hours and 20 minutes, it felt like three hours and 20 minutes. The fact that it took three minutes and 20 seconds to reach a decision tells you. Didn't they used to have a timer? I mean, that's the thing. If it takes more than a certain amount of time, it can't be clear and obvious. This isn't let's slow it down frame by frame and inspect it carefully with a magnifying glass. Remember the rule that I, I gave back during the Zach Miller play when his touchdown catch that resulted in that serious knee injury was wiped off because our Riveron claimed the ball touched the ground. If you have to squint, it's not clear and obvious. And, and I haven't even addressed the second part of the Jesse James catch because I think it's clear and obvious if he wasn't in possession of the ball long enough to clearly become a runner. I think it is clear and obvious that he didn't maintain control and the ball hit the ground. But I kind of have to squint. Right, Because you see the ball kind of move, and it never clearly is on the ground, but the context suggests that it is on the ground. But I don't know that that's clear and obvious. I don't know that 50 drunks in a bar would look at that and say they screwed it up. So that's the thing. That's the one big beef that I have with the current officiating function in the NFL. It shouldn't be Al Riveron breaking it down and telling us what the right call is. It should be Al Riveron saying the ruling on the field was that it was a catch. So in order to overturn that ruling, I must find clear and obvious evidence of an error. And folks, here's the play. You tell me. You get 49 other people in the room with you and have a couple of shots of whiskey, and you tell me, is it clear and obvious that the ruling on the field was incorrect? And the NFL is drifting away from that. That's the biggest problem right now the NFL has from an officiating standpoint. The biggest problem. They are not applying the standard correctly on a consistent basis. And it ain't all that hard to do it. I remember D- Dean Blandino used to be criticized repeatedly for not being a former official. I think it's better to have never been an official and be the one applying this standard. Because I think someone who was an official is very tempted to supply his own judgment and come to his own conclusion. And that's what Riveron does. And the problem is, I don't even think he realizes it, which is what makes him, and look, he's a nice guy. I've met him. I've talked to him. He's been helpful when we've had questions. We've had him on PFT Live. I just don't think he's suited for that job. He's suited for a job in the officiating department. I'm not saying the guy's livelihood should be taken away, but he's not suited for the job of being the person who decides, is there clear and obvious evidence to overturn the ruling on the field? So they either need to throw a bunch of money at Dean Blandino, let him come back and do only that job without all the other administrative BS. They never should have let him get away. They, they never they never should have let him get away because they set up the system for him and then in comes Fox. I'd love to know the story behind how Fox hired this guy and how the NFL didn't intervene 
and say, hey, broadcast partner, get your hands off Dean Blandino. It's going to undermine the project, the product if we have to change up this system we put in place. Now, I'm not saying that would make it right, but why didn't they? You could make the argument that the NFL, which isn't bashful about saying what it wants to say to its broadcast partner, so I'm told. I don't know that directly. I have no evidence of that. Well, remember Playmakers? They didn't like Playmakers, the fictional show about pro football that was on ESPN for a season. Paul Tagliabue, the commissioner at the time, complained that it was unrealistic. Yeah, it was unrealistic because it was too tame, based upon everything we've heard in the 10, 15 years after that. They're not afraid to squeeze a broadcast partner. So they let Fox bogart Dean Blandino. And the guy that they have to replace him isn't suited for the job, at least for the aspect of the job that is the most important aspect. How are you going to exercise your power from Ivory Tower on Park Avenue to overturn rulings on the field? How are you going to do it? Are you going to write, apply the right standard? Or are you going to not apply the right standard? That is an important issue. And I can't, I, I don't know. Look, I get accused of going on crusades from time to time. And I do. There are things that bother me. And I feel compelled to talk about it, talk about it, write about it, talk about it, complain about it until it's changed. This is fairly important, right? I'd say this is a fairly important issue. And I don't know why more people aren't demanding that the NFL more consistently apply the standard, clear and obvious evidence. Because look, I've, I've, I've almost done a 180 on this. I look at it in real time and I say, probably not a catch. I look at it applying the replay standard in light of the ruling on the field, and I say, probably not enough to overturn it. Go back and watch. For the first two minutes or so of that replay, CBS didn't know what the hell was going on. They didn't know what they were reviewing. If the announcers, here's another one. I'm going to add another rule of thumb. If you have to squint, it's not clear and obvious. If the people paid to broadcast the game and explain to the fans what the hell is going on, don't know what the hell is going on, it's not clear and obvious. I've got two rules now. Eventually, I'll have, I don't know, five or six. For now, we have two. Squinting means not clear and obvious. Broadcasting crew not knowing what the hell is going on, not clear and obvious. All right. Do I know what the hell's going on? I don't know what the hell's going on in Cleveland. John Dorsey has spoken again. I need to ask for John Dorsey on PFT Live. I wonder if they'll give him to me. Last week, when he was on... ESPN Cleveland, he was asked point blank, can you categorically say that Hugh Jackson will be back next year as the head coach? And John Dorsey answered some other question. He evaded, avoided, ducked the question. Now, he was on 92.3 The Fan in Cleveland on Tuesday, and he was asked again, and he said what he should have said last week. And my guess is somebody had a little chat with Mr. Dorsey in the aftermath of last Thursday's performance. And Mr. Dorsey was told in no uncertain terms, if and when you're asked that question again, here's your response. Ownership has already addressed that issue. And that's what he said. Specifically, ownership has spoken on that question. He repeated it when asked if that would also be his choice. See, that, that yeah, he, he, he wants his own coach. And that meshes with everything I've been hearing. That if this team goes 0-16, and as a practical matter, they got a game in Chicago. That's it. Because the Steelers need to win most likely week 17 to hold the number two seed. Because the Jaguars are looming. So Chicago against a bad Bears team, that's it. They lose that one 0-16. And I continue to believe, all due respect to Hugh Jackson and Rod Marinelli, if you've gone 0-16 in the NFL, you're unqualified to coach in the NFL. You can be an assistant. Rod Marinelli's doing a great job in Dallas. But if you can't, because what, what do we hear? Oh, they need to finish. Well, at some point, the coach is responsible, right? The Steelers needed to finish on Sunday. I said I wasn't going to talk about it anymore, but I'm trying to illustrate this point. The Steelers needed to finish on Sunday. And we've now established, from the words of Ben Roethlisberger, that the coaching staff had something to do with the failure to finish. So at some point, the coach is responsible. Good coach will get you two or three wins a year. Bad coach will cost you two or three games a year. Browns have won no games this year, and they won one game last year. And, and here's what I think is going on. I think the Haslams are so sensitive to the criticism that they experienced for firing people too quickly that they now feel compelled to go the other way. That they now are going to emulate the Roonies and keep a coach through the hard times. And they're going to invest the time and they're going to hope it turns around. And maybe it will. Maybe he just needs better players. But I think there's a point in this NFL where you have to say, look, 
Even a bad team should win a game from time to time. You're going to luck your way into a win from time to time. The coach is going to engineer a victory from time to time. 1-15 and 0-16 and and in an era of parity. And there was a lot of praise for the moves the Browns made in the offseason. No one was saying, oh, the Browns are going to suck. People were saying, hey, maybe the Browns are going to turn it around. I mean, the Steelers stuck with Chuck Knoll, who arrived in 1969. He went 1-13. The next year, he improved to 5-9. and nine. And then to 6-8. and eight. And then 11-3 and three in the Immaculate Reception playoff game. I don't know how many horrible years you could ever tolerate as an owner. 1-15, and 0-16, oh and, and they're going to bring him back again? And they expect people to actually surrender their discretionary income to show up for these games? I don't know. All because the Haslams are sensitive to being called out for giving up on people too early? I think there's a point where you got to give up on people. I think there's a point where you got to recognize it's just not working. And I think John Dorsey would very much like them to recognize it's not working and let him hire his own coach. He doesn't know Hugh Jackson from Adam. He knows plenty of other coaches. If you really want to give John Dorsey the best chance to succeed, let him hire his own person. I I guarantee you right now, Cleveland Browns, if you're listening, probably not, anyone in the organization, I promise, pinky swear, I will not criticize you if you fire Hugh Jackson. I will, and I hate to say this because I like Hugh. I will praise you if you let John Dorsey hire his own coach. Now, if Dorsey decides after a month with Hugh Jackson he's his coach, fine. But you hired John Dorsey to be the GM. No half measures. No arranged marriages. Let him hire his own coach. Let him turn this thing around, or at least try to turn this thing around. And stick with him. Stick with somebody. Unless they go 1-15 next year and 0-16 the following year. Aaron Rodgers has been placed on injured reserve. Joe Houlihan, Callahan, O'Hallahan is back on the roster. This isn't a surprise. There's no benefit to playing Aaron Rodgers. Remember back in, what was it, October, when he first suffered the broken collarbone? He said, if I'm healthy and it makes sense, I'll come back. Okay, there's still a question as to how healthy he is. But it now no longer makes sense for him to play. They're out of it. They're done. Kaput. It's over. You want to be spoiler? You want to screw up the Vikings' chance to get a bye week? You want to try to keep the Lions out of the playoffs? Well, you still got guys on the roster who can come out and do it. Now, and the other benefit is, and MDS and I are going to debate this tomorrow on PFT Live. If you're out of the playoffs, I got no problem with losing as many games as you can. Go as high in the draft standing as you can. Apparently, MDS's theory is, and I, I, I'll let him articulate it tomorrow. His theory is, teams screw up draft picks anyway, so what difference does it make? Well, teams invest a lot to move up. So if there's value in moving up, there's value in moving up without having to give up value to move up. If you can organically move up, so be it. So maybe they lose to the Vikings. Maybe they lose to the Lions. Maybe they finish even higher. Maybe they get some help for Aaron Rodgers next year. Could Mike McCarthy be a surprise firing this year? Probably not. But boy, one Super Bowl appearance to show for Aaron Rodgers' career in Green Bay. One of the best quarterbacks in NFL history because they haven't put the help around him. And nobody's been held accountable. In large part because they don't have one owner who can roll out of bed any given day and say, I want a new coach or I want a new GM. So we'll see what the Packers do this weekend. Brett Hundley, look, Brett Hundley wasn't horrible. But... The Vikings and the Lions both have motivation. I don't know. The Lions may be done by next week. There's so many permutations. I'm not going to wear myself out trying to figure out what's going to be relevant in 2017. If this happens here and that happens there, let's just enjoy it. And then after each week of games, we reassess where everyone is. We'll know by Monday whether or not the Lions still have a chance to get to the postseason. They may need to beat the Packers. They're 8-6. and six. The Vikings need to win their next two to nail down the number two seed. And they still have an outside shot at the number one seed. So the Packers can still disrupt the postseason aspirations for a couple of rivals. They're just going to have to do it with Aaron Rodgers. And and look, from Rodgers' perspective, I I think there's a concern that he doesn't want to compare unfavorably to Brett Favre. And I think that's a fair concern. Because you got a guy in Favre who showed up all the time no matter what. And I don't think Rodgers ever wants to be the one who's perceived as tapping out. But there's a point where it's just smart. There's also a point where, and I know Rodgers will never say this, there's a point where I haven't taken care of this guy financially. He's making $22 million a year. Matthew Stafford, 27 Derek Carr, 25 Andrew Luck, 24 5 Joe Flacco, 22 one 
They haven't fixed Rogers' contract. Why would he want to put himself at risk of another collarbone injury? He got hit 12 times on Sunday. It's the most he's been hit since, he, since like 2015. 12 hits in his first game back. And the Panthers blitzed 31 times. They, look, they, they, no one's going to talk about it anymore. Bounty gate, you don't talk about the value of knocking the opposing quarterback out of the game with clean legal hits, but it's there. And if you know the guy's injured, all the more reason to hit him and hit him and hit him because you know he's thinking about it. So what's the point of putting him back out on the field for two meaningless games against teams for whom it's not meaningless? All right. I wrote something earlier today. This is, I haven't really been clear about my transitions. I try to like pause for effect or make it clear I'm moving on. We've done first down, second down, third down, fourth down. First down was Ben throwing Todd Haley and others under the bus. Second down, further analysis of the catch rule. Third down, whatever the hell's going on in Cleveland. Fourth down, Aaron Rodgers. Fifth down. I wrote something earlier today about the Jerry Richardson situation. And look, I understand that People have opinions on things, and on social media, you know, a lot of times they just read the tweet, they just read the headline, they don't really think about it and understand it. I want to explain the real world world dynamics here, because everything that's gone on, and I guess it began with Harvey Weinstein, and it's been one after another, after another, after another. We hear about men who have behaved badly at work, and it's good that people are coming forward. It's good that people who were silent for years are saying something. People who felt intimidated. People who felt that they had no voice. People who feared retaliation. It's good that after all these years, people who did nothing at the time are coming forward and doing and saying something. I encourage that. But we can't get so caught up in this tidal wave of people coming forward, and this one's coming forward, and that one's coming forward. We can't get so caught up in that that we lose sight of the bigger picture. And here's the bigger picture as it relates to the Carolina Panthers. As to the individuals who received confidential settlements from the Panthers in the past, they all came forward. These are people who did not wait to feel empowered by a movement to do what they couldn't do. These are people who negotiated settlement agreements. These are people who presumably went to a lawyer and ultimately had that lawyer negotiate an agreement pursuant to which they received compensation in exchange for a waiver of legal claims they could have made. And I explained this a little bit yesterday, but let me reiterate how this works. The person who loses their job, male or female, doesn't matter. You lose your job and you disagree with it. By the way, I got to multitask here. I got to put out a tweet. We are taping this. It's going to be live soon, but I was just told that the appeal hearing in the Thomas Davis case has concluded. This is riveting, isn't it? Fortunately, you can't change the channels. You're locked in. You're listening to this. Let me finish this. Has concluded. A ruling is expected later today. All right. Uh, So what happens is someone loses their job and they're not happy with the outcome. It's not my fault. I was wronged. That's very common. When I practiced law, when I practiced on my own, see, I spent, I don't know, a decent number of years defending employers against cases like this. And then like the last nine, 10 years of my legal career representing people who would show up in the office and they'd be upset about what happened to them. The job of the lawyer in that setting is to take their experience and try to find a way to turn it into something that is potentially actionable through the civil justice system. Because in most states, employees without contracts for employment are at will. You hear that term from time to time. I'm an at will employee. That means that you don't have a contract and you can be fired at any time for any reason. Good reason, bad reason, no reason. And you can leave at any time with or without notice for any reason. You're not locked in, they're not locked in. But there are exceptions to being employed at will. The civil rights laws, state, federal, and local. If there are local laws, it depends on the jurisdiction. The civil rights laws prevent discrimination on the basis of a variety of factors. Race, gender, national origin. Some states have protection against sexual orientation discrimination. Most states have a provision that protects you against retaliation if you've engaged in certain protected activities. 
there's some sort of fraud going on in the workplace and you alert the authorities and they fire you because they're pissed off. I remember the the office near the end, there was a stupid storyline where Andy Bernard was exposing the fact that the Sabre printers were, was it Sabre or Sabre? The Sabre, they thought it was Sabre, it was Sabre, that the Sabre printers were catching on fire and they were going to find out who the snitch was and they were going to fire him. In most jurisdictions, you'd have one hell of a lawsuit. Because you can't just show up and say, who is it that is trying to protect the public from our dangerous products? Whoever it is is getting the hell out of here. That's one example. These are just examples of the kind of thing that make you not an at-will employee. So the job of the lawyer is, and I've sat through these meetings, you sit there and you ask a bunch of questions and you, you see, is there something that happened that resulted in this person's rights being violated? And if so, then you lay out the options. You know, here's what we can do. We can put a, a lawsuit together and we can file it. Or I can try to negotiate something with them before it comes to a lawsuit. And apparently what happened with these four individuals that Sports Illustrated discovered with the Panthers, former employees, they negotiated these settlement agreements before they ever filed a lawsuit. So no facts were developed. No depositions were taken. Nobody really knows what happened. What happened is these individuals received justice. They were represented most likely by counsel. They negotiated a payment that they deemed was suited to whatever it is they experienced. They waived their legal claims and they agreed not to talk about it. That's a very standard clause. I know SI tried to make it all seem ominous and nefarious. It's very standard to agree to confidentiality. So that's how it works. So that's what happened. That's what laid the foundation for what Sports Illustrated ultimately became aware of. I mention all that because now that you have Jerry Richardson, once it's come to light that there were these four settlement agreements, and now the NFL looking into what prompted those agreements, the NFL's nuclear option, as we learned as it relates to Jerry Jones and the trouble he was causing as it relates to Roger Goodell's contract, the nuclear option is forcing the person to sell the team. And that's exactly what the NBA did to Donald Sterling. They forced him to sell. He sold to Steve Ballmer for $2 billion. More on that in a minute. But the point is this. When Richardson stands up and says, I'll sell the team, I still don't understand why the NFL is going through with the investigation. Because here's what it does. The next time there's an owner who's in a situation like this, there's no incentive to not fighting it tooth and nail. Jerry Jones would fight it tooth and nail. And especially after what's happened to Jerry Richardson. You fight it tooth and nail. And I don't know that it's anyone's interest to fight it tooth and nail. And I understand, look, because the argument is there needs to be transparency. And we need to find out what happened. And we, and we need to make sure this doesn't happen again. Well, there's going to be a new ownership group. It doesn't matter what the old ownership group do, did. And I don't, I, I mean, I, I feel like it's a waste of resources. It's putting people through unnecessary hardship. The alleged victims, other witnesses, it disrupts the organization. For what? What's the worst the NFL can do to him? He's already accepted the worst punishment they could give. He's agreed to sell the team. This is a lot like, remember the, the scene in My Cousin Vinny where Joe Pesci is appearing in front of Herman Munster and Joe Pesci is asked, how do your clients plead? And Pesci doesn't understand because Pesci's, I don't think he's ever been inside of a courtroom before. He doesn't understand that at the arraignment, all you have to say is guilty or not guilty. This is the equivalent of pleading guilty, but still having the trial. See, if you plead guilty, there's no need for the trial. That's what confuses me about this. Richardson has pleaded guilty and accepted the equivalent of the death penalty. He's going to sell the team. What does the NFL gain by having an investigation? What, what can they do to him? He's already going to sell the team. I mean, I guess they could impose some sort of fine or something like that, but he's already selling the team. He's already doing the worst thing they could possibly do to him. Now, many of you had said, oh, it's a real punishment to have to sell your team for $2 billion. First of all, we don't know what he's going to get for the team. And second of all, it is a punishment because it's forcing him to do something he doesn't want to do. It's kicking him out of the club. Yeah, sure. What, what, what are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to say you're out of the club and all you get back from the sale is what you paid for the asset in 1993? 
I mean, I, I guess that would be punishment, but I'm not sure the punishment fits the crime, especially when in this case, the individuals involved have received what they decided, most likely with the advice of legal counsel, was justice. Justice comes in many shapes, sizes, and forms. You can file a criminal complaint, and if there's a violation of the law that way, the person gets prosecuted, maybe gets put in jail. You can settle the case in civil court, and you can agree not to testify without the issuance of a proper subpoena. You can agree not to cooperate. You can agree to all sorts of things. You get your justice through the payment of money. And a lot of the stories we're hearing in other industries are coming from people who, for whatever reason, decided not to say anything, not to do anything. And those people should come forward. However far back it goes, if the movement that we've seen, beginning with Harvey Weinstein and continuing up until who knows what's next, if that prompts people to come forward, good. But the thing we need to keep in mind, in the Richardson case, the people already came forward. They chose to come forward privately. They chose to accept the settlement. They chose to agree to confidentiality. And as a lawyer, it bugs me that someone's violating that confidentiality. I, I, I used to worry. I used to, I used to lay awake at night wondering, hoping that my client doesn't blab about how much money he or she got, especially in the couple weeks before the case is done. Once the money's changed hands, it's a lot harder to do anything about it. But typically you work out your deal and it takes about a month before the checks are cut. And if you get somebody blabbing in that month, and that's typically when I was the most nervous, if they're violating the confidentiality agreement before the agreement's even signed and before the money's even in hand, they're not going to give you the money. So that, that's the big difference between Richardson's case and all the other ones we've heard about. Because all the other ones we've heard about, or at least most of them, now we're hearing about ones where there were settlement agreements, but you need to understand that is a completely separate reality from the people who are coming forward who had never said anything to anyone and had never gotten any justice. And yes, I know at a certain point this does fall into the Fox News box, like it was with Bill O'Reilly, because there were a lot of settlements. And there's a certain point where there's so many and for they're there for so much money, you got to do something. Okay, what's the worst thing you do? You fire him, right? What's the worst thing you do to Jerry Richardson? You fire him. And yes, he's going to make money off of his asset. But I think there's a point where you're doing too much to a guy. You're forcing him to sell when he doesn't want to. He's going to get fair market value for what he's selling. And that's the worst the NFL could have done to him. That's my point. That's my concern. And here's the other concern going forward. And, and look, the NFL is going to have to deal with this. This is all a product of the reaction to the Ray Rice case from 2014. When the NFL decided we're no longer going to pay any attention to the civil justice system or the criminal justice system, we're going to, we're going to do our own investigations. If these civil settlement agreements fall within the scope, even without a lawsuit being filed, if they fall within the scope of the personal conduct policy, first of all, how many other teams out there have these agreements that no one knows about? Second of all, how do you find out about them? Third of all, what do you do once you find out? And I've suggested that the NFL needs to have an amnesty period where they give teams and owners an opportunity to self-report that they have these agreements with no punishment for failing to report. There may be punishment for what's in those agreements and whatever the investigation leads to. But the NFL is sliding onto a very slippery slope here because most American businesses enter into settlement agreements from time to time. And plenty of American businesses have been accused from time to time of various forms of discrimination or harassment. And a lot of times they just choose not to fight it. A lot of times they would be vindicated, but they'd spend a lot more money. People would know about it. People would would judge them in the court of public opinion, regardless of whether or not they win or lose in a court of law. And some people just choose to take the certain path. And, you know, I dealt with all sorts of clients from that perspective who were being sued. Some of them, they took it very personally, and they would rather pay the lawyer $100,000. I'm just using round numbers here. They'd rather, use, they'd rather pay the lawyer $100,000 than lose $50,000 or, or in a settlement even though it makes business sense to pay the 50000 and be done with it and not have this big public spectacle. There are other employers who view all of this as a cost of doing business, and you understand that from time to time people are going to make claims, and you resolve the claims quietly, because if other employees know, hey, all you have to do is make a complaint, you're going to get a big bag full of money, that's one of the reasons you have confidentiality. But a lot of companies will say, we're just going to, we're, we're going to negotiate this and we're going to move on. We don't want the headache. I'd rather spend 50000 now than 100000 and have this big public mess that people know about. So 
And, and yeah, do, I get. Do we need to know what happened with Richardson? I mean, on one hand, I say yes, we need to know. On the other hand, I say, what can they do to him? And what incentive does that create for these other owners who may inevitably be facing the same decision Richardson faced? Instead of selling the team, they're going to have every incentive to dig in. Because if you're going to investigate me anyway, why am I going to agree to sell? I'll fight. I'll fight tooth and nail. How dare you touch my franchise? I own my business. I mean, think about this. Jerry Richardson has voluntarily agreed to sell a business that he founded 24 years ago. I don't know what more we can expect. Chris Sims and I had this argument on Monday because he's like, well, they still need to investigate. They still need to punish. It's like, Chris, you got to understand, even though the guy's getting paid for the asset, he's being forced to sell something he doesn't want to sell. I don't want to sell my house and I'd be compensated for it fairly if I did, but I sure as hell don't want to sell it. If somebody forced me to sell it, that would be a bad thing. So I look, I know it's hard to have sympathy for the people who've been accused of wrongdoing, but I, I, we have to be fair to both sides of this. Because there's a point where the punishment fits the crime. And there's a point where we have to be concerned that we overpunish someone. What is too much in a situation like this for someone who has already paid out justice in the form of settlement agreements with an agreement, a legally negotiated and binding agreement to have confidentiality, how much justice is deserved to anyone beyond what was paid and now the fact that Jerry Richardson is voluntarily selling something he didn't want to sell, voluntarily embracing the worst case scenario that the NFL could have executed under its constitution and bylaws. So I think we just need to have an open mind about the other side of this. How much punishment is enough? And what is the benefit of investigating a guy who's already said, essentially, you got me? Now, he hasn't said it in those terms, but he's essentially accepted the maximum sentence for the crime that he's accused of. Once you accept the maximum sentence, does it really make sense to go forward with the trial? That's my point. And if you want to disagree with me, that's fine. You want to call me out on Twitter? I don't care. But try to understand the point before you assume that I'm being unreasonably sympathetic with someone who's done something they shouldn't have done. Right? Even if he did it, what do we really want? Do, do we want him to be, what's the thing they used to do, the stocks? Where they, you know, they're in the public and they you know, throw cabbages and tomatoes at his head? What do we want beyond the guy entering into settlements with the individuals whose rights were violated or allegedly were violated, never got to the point where it was proven, and being forced to sell a team that he doesn't want to sell? I don't know what more we could want. I think that's a win for justice. And I don't know that doing this investigation benefits anyone, um, especially the NFL. All right, let's see if you have some questions. This is another one of those days where, where we... Blindly take questions from Twitter. I have a feeling some of them may be about Richardson. Unless it's some new territory, I'm not going to uh, to address it any further. Let's see. Oh, boy, 49. Boy, it used to be like in the 20s. Now it's near 50 every day. All right, let's see. At freezing cold takes, or more accurately, at old takes exposed, do the Patriots win the AFC? Only yes or no answer acceptable, have to answer, can't pass. Yes, they win the AFC. At Mark Paselli 13, what is a catch? Uh, there aren't enough hours remaining in this day. At B-Flow Show, shout out to the Impact 99 and T.E. Gensler for always asking great questions. Thanks for taking questions. You're welcome. And T.E. Gensler chimes in. Thank you, too. And the Impact 99 is always on. All right, can we move? Can, okay, that's fine. Are you, are you all happy now? You've had your little, uh, you've had your little uh, uh, pat each other on the back session. At Kevin JDD, what WTF is PFTPM? It's a podcast that supplements Pro Football Talk Live. Pro Football Talk Live is on 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern every Monday through Friday. NBC Sports Radio, the final two-hour simulcast on NBCSN. At the end of the day, I come on here and I prattle, ideally for 35 minutes, but already it's 46 minutes, about things that have happened throughout the course of the day. Does that answer your question? I hope it does. At John Meerdink, what do you want for Christmas? I, I, you know what? I, I really don't want to, I, I, I'm not that I'm past Christmas cause I enjoy the time with family and I enjoy the, you know, the kids and, and the, the, the fascination. And, and I remember the days of, 
of, you know, not being able to sleep. And, and I got, I've got like crafts that my mom made when I was a kid that I still have. And, and you get caught up in the spirit of it, but I, re- I really don't want anything. I mean, when you're an adult and you've had, you know, a little bit of good fortune and you're able to buy what you want and you work all the time, it's not like I have time to, to really do anything with anything I'd buy. I'll just keep working. It's like, oh, but that's nice. I, I bought that thing that I wanted. Uh, what am I going to do with it? I don't know. I got to go back to work. So I really don't want anything because when I want something, I just buy it. So I hope that answers your question. World peace. Let me try that again. World peace. That's what I want for Christmas. Uh, at Gnome Sane Bruh. What should I get her for Christmas? She has a restraining order in custody of our kids. And Daryl told me in court that he doesn't. Yeah. All right. That's fine. Uh, next one. At B. Zenzen, with the remaining schedules, who has the best chance in the NFC to lock up first and second spot? I'd say it's going to be the Eagles and the Vikings. I think the Vikings are going to win their last two games. They have the Packers with Brett Hundley and Joe Houlihan at quarterback, and then they've got the Bears at home to finish out the season. The question is, do the Eagles do the Eagles win their last two? And I See, the Eagles have already beaten the Rams, and the Eagles have clinched a bye. So I think the question is, between Vikings and Eagles, which one's the one seed, which one's the two seed? If the Eagles lose their final two, then the Vikings win their final two, the Vikings get the two seed. I think the Eagles, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think if the Eagles win one, they have the one seed. So I think it's going to be Vikings, Eagles, or Eagles, Vikings, one of the two. With an outside chance of a team like the Panthers, who are one game in the loss column behind the Vikings and who hold the tiebreaker over the Vikings. If the Panthers win that division and they finish 12-4 and four and the Vikings are 12-4, and four, the Panthers have the two seed. But right now, it sure looks like, because the Vikings have beaten the Saints, the Falcons, and the Rams, it sure looks like the Vikings are going to be the number two seed in the NFC, at a minimum, with the chance of being the number one seed. Next question, at Faisal Morali, what happened to the question of the day and the get it done inbox? The get it done inbox is done and gone, because whoever sponsored it no longer sponsors the segment. I can't even remember who it was. Hey, you only get your name mentioned if you're I do remember. You get mentioned if you're paying us money. Once you don't pay us any money more, that's it. Question of the day, was that, that's like the poll question. We'll do that sometimes. We kind of evolved away from it. Maybe we'll bring it back. Thank you for the reminder. At Faisal Morali again, are you going to put in a bid for the Panthers? You always talk about owning a team. I talk about owning a team from the perspective of hypotheticals. Like if I owned the team, and I always say, the fan base of that team should be glad that I don't. If I had the money... I'd buy a team. Hey, look, I've been following football well enough to know that I'd say I could manage and own a team better than half of the owners who do if I had the money to buy a team. I mean, for most of them, the qualification is they uh, are in the lineage, right? It's like royalty. Well, dad owned the team and dad died, so now I own the team. The hurt? No disrespect to anyone intended. And that doesn't mean that everyone who inherits a team is unfit. Plenty of them are, and plenty of them do a great job. But if I had the money, hell yeah, I'd buy a team. I'd definitely buy a team. And I'd drive it right into the ground. And I'd have fun every, every, and here's the thing. I'd say we want to win the Super Bowl every year. And then meanwhile, I'd be counting all the money saying, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with not winning the Super Bowl. I'm okay with it. Only one team's going to win it every year. I'm not going to lose sleep over it. Yeah, I'll tell you what. It, it would be, I can't imagine how much fun it would be to own an NFL team. And uh, since I don't have a couple of billion laying around anywhere, we'll never find out. At Chachi the Kid, do you ever make fun of PA on the mic? That's Paul Allen of KFAN for not having a verified Twitter account. I should. I will. Thank you for the prompting. Do you think the Jaguars will beat the Patriots or will be the biggest Patriots test in the playoffs? Either the Jaguars or the Ravens. Because the Ravens have gone to New England before and they've they've performed very well in the postseason. They won there a couple of times. They embarrassed them. 2009 playoffs, wild card round. I mean, the game was over like five minutes in. And then there was an AFC championship game there that the Ravens won. There was another one they almost won. Remember the Lee Evans drop? that The ball was ripped out just as he was in the process of catching it. Another question from Matt Fazzo Morali. When does the offensive line in Seattle get exposed? Uh, it already has. At C. Schmidt 21-21, Bills contenders or pretenders? I'm still going to say pretenders. But they get motivated when you say pretenders, so maybe that makes them contenders. And and do, do we really envision the Bills winning a game in the postseason? It would be nice if they make it to the playoffs. They haven't been there since 1999, but I don't see them getting beyond the wild card round. At Jordan 2020, why won't the Jets play Hackenberg? Well, apparently he stinks. He stinks so bad, they don't want everyone to know he stinks. I think I made that Mark Twain 
reference as it relates to Hackenberg a couple of weeks ago. The old line, it's better to, what's the line again? Fool me once, shame on, shame on me. Fool me, can't get fooled again. No, it's it's better to keep your mouth shut and be perceived a fool than open your mouth and confirm it. I think the Jets would rather Hackenberg not play and everyone say, boy, he probably stinks, than you put him on the field and everyone say, well, he definitely stinks. That's what I think is going on. Uh, what's next? At S. Alvashire. I... I have looked all over the internet, NFL website, and Panthers website, and cannot find the application to buy the Panthers. Can you please break a damn story and find publish the link? That That's not the way it works. I have news for anyone out there who thinks all you have to do is post a tweet and say, spread the word. That's not how it works. You know, there's investment bankers, high-level lawyers and representatives, people who have billions. See, that's the thing. Part of being a billionaire is at some point in the process of amassing a billion dollars, you've learned how to properly go about initiating the process for making a major acquisition, which is kind of a good screening process, don't you think? Right? I mean, if you don't know how to go about spending a billion or 1.5 or 2 billion, if you don't already know, maybe you probably aren't the best person to own the team. But typically the people who have that money, they, they know who to call to initiate the process. So there is no application for owning the Carolina Panthers. Montoy? Monthoit? One? Monthoit. At Monthoit. Sorry, let me try that again. At Monthoit. Bill O'Brien back in Houston next year. I don't know. Deshaun Watson wants him back. Apparently he said so again today. Will that influence Bob McNair, the owner of the team, to keep Bill O'Brien? Last year there was a lot of talk that O'Brien wanted out. And I don't think Bob McNair's forgotten it. This year, Bob McNair could move on from Bill O'Brien and hire any coach he wants. What coach would say no to coaching Deshaun Watson for the next 10 years? Not many. Next up, at Tracy McBrady, who will be the Bengals' next coach? I have no idea. And it still could be Marvin Lewis. This yesterday, Marvin, do you want to coach this team next year? Sure. It's like, hey, Marvin, you want another piece of pizza? Sure. Okay. Um, Marvin Lewis had a contract that expired five, six years ago, and everybody thought he was leaving. And he looked around and there wasn't anything better. And the Bengals looked around and there wasn't anything cheaper or better. So they decided to continue to work together. Now, I don't know. Will the Bengals promote Paul Gunther? Do they go the safe course with the devil they know instead of the devil they don't know? That's why there's speculation about Hugh Jackson going to Cincinnati. Although, if you're Mike Brown, do you want a guy who was 1-31? in Even though maybe he will be great in that job. Maybe you make Marvin Lewis the GM. You let Hugh Jackson be the head coach. Everyone's on the same page. Everyone gets along. I don't know. I don't know. There's the answer. I don't know. At T1876 Keller, do the Vikings need home field advantage to win the NFC? No, they don't. They could win in Philadelphia. They, could, they, they, have, they have a team that plays well on the road. It used to be the Vikings were hopeless when you took them out of the Metrodome. Now, with the defense, with the running game, with a quarterback who, who, can, who can fling it around in the elements, I don't think they need to do that. At... Rob Foster, 135. Finish this sentence. Tomlin is 40% style and 60% substance. Belichick is, oh, that's easy, 1% style and 99% substance. And I don't know, I think 1% is probably rounding up from low percentages below 1. Let's see what's next. At Neil Toth, if the XFL does in fact come back for the second time around, do you foresee it being good or bad for the NFL given their current state of negative publicity? I think it's bad for the NFL if it comes back. Now, I don't think they'll compete with the NFL head-to-head. But if they come back and they embrace old-school football with big hits and whatnot, they'll get a lot of buzz. They'll attract a lot of fans. There is a huge disconnect, I believe. The same disconnect between the media and the voters in November 2016. I think it exists between the media and the players slash fans. We see it all the time. The players know what they signed up for. The players want to go out and have big hits. The players want the contact. They assume the risk. They know what they're getting into. No one can say at this point that they don't know what they're getting into. And I think the fans want it too. And I think I think there's a way to do it where it would work well. And uh, and and I know there's so much hand-wringing out there about the brutality of football. I think the people who do that have never watched the UFC. At Josh Freer, 224, with a... Michael Scott Giff, why are you the way that you are? Thank you. Well done. Well played. 
at Beef Lofo Shore. Who do you or what do you think is the owner's number one change request at the next CBA? I don't know if they want to change anything. I think they're happy with the way everything is. The 2006 CBA, the owners almost instantly were complaining about it. The 2011 CBA, we haven't heard a peep from the owners. I think they'd be fine with going forward the way things currently are. I don't think lockout is a risk the next time around. I think strike is a risk, and I don't know how realistic of a risk that is. At BFLOFO Show, is the ESPN substance abuse story being overshadowed by the Panthers' ownership situation? I don't think it is. I think there's capacity in the sports media for multiple big stories. I just, I still am confused by the fact that something that would be tucked into a Friday bad news dump is front and center, top of the fold, Monday morning news. And I think it does invite speculation. And I'm just speculating. I don't know that that announcement was made on Monday morning to get ahead of something else. And I don't know what, but that's what it feels like. Unless there is not a competent PR professional at ESPN, the John Skipper resignation is something you hear about at 5 p.m. on a Friday. Unless, now look, let me go next level. Maybe there is nothing else. And maybe they decided we're going to go 9 a.m. on Monday. We're going to lead with our chin on a Monday morning that this is what's out there. And we know there's nothing else, but we don't want there to be speculation that there's something else. We don't want there to be speculation that John Skipper is running and hiding from anything. And it looks that way when you do a Friday afternoon bad news dump. So we're going to lead with it on Monday morning, and we know there's not going to be anything else. And no one is going to say, whoa, 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 there's going to be something else. Although I just said, well, maybe there's going to be something else. At Yonster, will the Steelers take blame for terrible end-of-game management or blame everyone and everything else for their mistakes? Hashtag Sour Grapes. Already addressed that earlier. Sour Grapes from Ben Roethlisberger and fundamental differences between the Steelers and the Patriots. At DJ Professor K72, with Blake Bortles playing at a high level, do you see his performance in this season's playoff as what determines his future in Jacksonville? I, I think there's a chance he does enough in the regular season that they decide to keep him next year. But I think if he wins a playoff game... And if he keeps improving the way he has, then yes, one of the biggest surprises of the 2017 season, Blake Bortles playing his way into his fifth-year option of $18 million plus. Because back in August, we thought that they could not wait to get to the end of the season and release Blake Bortles before that money becomes fully guaranteed. At The Real Bob Platt, how's your fantasy doing, uh, team doing? Nice nice one, Bob. Uh, <laughs> at Jake Heinzen, in what order do you rank these Packer uh, personnels to be back next year, least likely to most likely, Ted Thompson, Dom Capers, Mike McCarthy. I, I don't know. I just think that they, they, uh, they'll all be back, right? Because that's the way the Packers do things. Not a criticism, just an observation. When you don't have one owner, you tend to kick the can. All right, I probably should go. At T.E. Gensler 14, are you going to answer that Schefter question about inviting him onto the show or the podcast? You really teased that one. I, well, I can't even remember what I said. I, I talk so much now. This is probably not good. When you talk so much that you don't remember what you said and when you said it, I vaguely recall that I started to kind of go in on Schefter a little bit, and I backed off, and yeah, I, I, I don't think he'll come on the, the podcast, and uh, let me just leave it at that. I keep I keep saying I'm done, and I keep seeing more questions I want to answer. At Killaz93, who wins the NFC South? Boy, I really don't know at this point. Could the Falcons win at New Orleans and then at home against Carolina? I'm going to say New Orleans wins it. I'll say New Orleans. Final answer. At old takes exposed. Uh, all right. I'll tell you what. I'm probably... Oh, oh, oh. See, I T.E. Gensler 14, who's my favorite band slash musician? Kiss and Green Day. Kiss 1, Green Day 1A. And I've had chances to go see Kiss in the past couple of years. And, you know, there's a point where you just assume listen to the old albums and and remember the days gone by because they got a lot of their more recent concerts on YouTube and I think we all need to know when it's over and I think there is a point where squeezing yourself like an oversized sausage into a spandex suit and slathering on makeup and prancing around in these heels there's, there's probably a point where it's not a good look it's not a good visual and also and, and, and look, I, it pains me to say this. Paul Stanley's voice is shot. And I understand from their perspective, look, more power to them. They've been about making money for more than 40 years. They had the right formula. It, 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 was, it was raw adrenaline for a 10-year-old kid to see Kiss on TV. 
back in the days of three channels. They got onto that Paul Lind Halloween special. And I was like, what is this thing? This is different than anything I've ever seen, and I love it. They, they knew how to make money. The music wasn't great, but it was good enough. Now, mm, now, I saw Green Day in March. Green Day still brings it. But there's going to be a point where they're not bringing it anymore, and you need to know when to walk away. That, that's the toughest thing to do. When you're talking about a skill like that that does deteriorate over time, the ability to play the guitar, the ability to sing, you do get to a point where you can't do it anymore. There's a point where you got to know when to walk away. All right, speaking of that, I walk away. One hour in, longer than I intended to talk. I appreciate you listening if you listen to this much of it. Tomorrow is Wednesday. We will do another PFT MPM podcast on Wednesday, PFT Live tomorrow on NBC Sports Radio and NBCSN. MDS and I are going to argue over this whole tanking issue. He's opposed to it. I'm in favor of it. And uh, he'll end up uh, agreeing with me by the time that we're done. Check us out tomorrow. Check out PFT PM podcast. Check out profootballtalk.com. We'll check you out later. You can find the PFT PM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFT PM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.